This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. This is a show about craft, the writing life, and the themes that are present in a writer's work. Every interview is a journey. I don't really know where our conversation is going to go, but I do know that it's fascinating every time. And one way or another, we seem to get around to what it means to be human and how through craft that idea is articulated on the page. Thank you for joining me on this literary pilgrimage into the mind of one writer at a time. My interview today is with Peter Orner, author of the nonfiction book, Still No Word From You. I spend a great deal of time uh, putting stuff in order. I mean, it takes me, you know, months and I lay it out on the floor and it's physical. Like, you know, and I, I kind of crawl around and I'll read something and then I'll think, all right, what, what can go, what can go next? We'll be back with Peter Orner after these essential words. First, I want to say thank you for listening. The episode you're about to tune into represents nine and a half years of weekly interviews with writers on craft and the literary life. This interview is one piece of an archive of more than 380 conversations that go into depth about how writers create their work and the subject matters that obsess them. Every single week to prepare and produce this show, I am doing three main tasks simultaneously. First, I am reading and researching for the interview I'm going to do that week. Second, I'm editing and voicing the episode that will air the next week. Third, I'm contacting authors and publishers and researching the lineup for the next month and season. With this work, I lean into the values of honesty, vulnerability, curiosity, and connection. I think about them as I create this show, and I hope you can feel them in the content. I simply cannot take this time to create First Draft without listener support. So I'm asking you with all my heart to please join me on this journey by becoming a donating member of the First Draft community. You are hearing this episode today 100% courtesy of those who transformed from listeners to supporters. And I have to say it's been hard the last few months as inflation has impacted some of my loyal patrons who had to stop giving. Won't you be willing to replace them to keep this show alive? As a thank you, my patrons receive access to cuts from the interviews that didn't make it into the final show ad-free, pitch-free episodes, and writing tips from my guests. You can become a supporter by going to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash firstdraftwriters. Any amount is welcome, 
but for $6 a month, you receive thank you gifts on a monthly basis. Please stay tuned at the end of the show. I'll offer recommendations on an episode in the archive that is similar to the one you're about to hear. And please rate the show on iTunes and tell everyone you know to subscribe. And thank you mostly for listening and for being here with me today, right now, in this moment, and on to the show. My interview today is with a fiction writer, essayist, and nonfiction writer, Peter Orner. He is the author of two novels, three short story collections, and two books of essays. His essay collection, Am I Alone Here?, was a finalist for the National Book Critics Circle Award for Criticism. He has won three Pushcart Prizes, and his work has appeared in the Best American Short Stories, The New York Times, The New Yorker, and The Paris Review, among other publications. Orner is the Director of Creative Writing at Dartmouth College. His new collection, Still No Word From You, offers blended essays that combine elements of Orner's life, particularly his childhood in Highland Park, Illinois, with commentary on literature and the craft of writing. Some of the writers he thinks deeply about include Franz Kafka, Primo Levi, Jean Rhys, and James Allen McPherson. The reader is invited into the links Orner investigates between great works of literature and the loss and longing in his own life. We began the discussion with Peter Orner sharing what was going on for him when he started the pieces in the collection. Pandemic, um, part of it. But I, I have a lot of trouble writing fiction. <laughs> You know, it, it really, it, it's, it's tough for me. And so in order to feel like I actually still do what I do, I, I turn to, you know, kind of scribbling about stuff I'm reading. And that usually leads me into a memory. And that's how this book got kind of going. It was like reading memory, reading memory. Um, oh, oh, I have a fiction to work on. <laughs> and then I would do that. So this, I mean, it, it, um, it's happened last time too. It was just, it, it's a result of my, um, you know, being stalled out or having trouble or, you know, I love writing fiction more than anything in the world, but I can't always do it for some reason. I don't know. I, I felt like after reading this, and I think partly because I read, you know, Am I Alone Here also, that if you had any religion, I would think it would be fiction. I, I just feel like, God, this guy like lives and breathes fiction and I'm just wondering if that's feels accurate at all. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think I, I I have never said it quite that way, but sh- sure. Um, you know, I was in uh, I went to uh, one of the services this year, Yom Kippur or Rosh Hashanah, I forget which. And my temple, I was home in Chicago, and my temple has um, has like religious stuff. You know, it's kind of a hippie, not a hippy dippy, not too hippy dippy temple, but you know. Um, on the hippy dippy side of things, on the leftish side of things, and it had the, the rabbi actually said, "Well, we got the real, we got the religious stuff on the right, and we have the literature on the left, which is, you know, kind of, you know, writing about spirituality, but often excerpts from novels." And there was a, a, a quote from Marilyn Robinson, you know, who's not Jewish, right, on the left side of the page, and you know, it was just I, I kept going on the left side of the page. So I, I think, you know, I think literature. I think reading and stories and, you know, yeah, it's definitely my, um, you know, whatever, if I, if I am reaching for something that might fill a void of not having a religion, that's it for sure. It's something to, to truly believe in. And I, maybe I'm still naive enough to think I still, to, to still believe in it. 
Yeah, which doesn't it, it doesn't negate your Judaism. <laughs> My Judaism is pretty lame, but you know, I, I try. I try. One of the things that I felt when I closed this book was this incredible sense of longing. I mean, many of these essays, I was in tears by the end. Um, but I felt like this overarching sense of yearning. And if I had to have an image, it's somebody in an empty room looking towards the door for someone to walk through. <laughs> That's it right there. That's it. So tell me how you hold all that and, and maybe about the genesis of of those emotions and feelings for you and, and why you can find them in everything (laughs) (laughs) you're writing. I mean, you really, your, your image, um, I can remember so many times in my life where I was doing that, you know, that, that thing actually, you know, it's either the window or the door, right. You know, and, uh, um, you know, I think as our losses pile up (laughs) as we, as we move on, um, you know, those things only become more, uh, more pronounced. It doesn't necessarily make it sadder for me. You know, um, I'm very moved by, you know, your reaction because, um, you've been reading my work for a long time. So <laughs> the fact that you're not over it and you're like, okay, here it goes again. <laughs> you, know what I mean? if, you know, I am honored. And, and I, I, I do think that, I think that I'm just still kind of, um, looking for uh, some, solace in in remembering you know and and you know i think um i i I, the books that i'm drawn to the poems that i'm drawn to the stories that i'm drawn to are are often trying to do the same thing you know recreating through memory and, and honoring um but recognizing that the loss is irreparable how would you maybe explain the difference between loss, memory, and nostalgia. I was talking about this just yesterday um, on a walk with a friend. You know, I think we can sentimentalize and that is not a crime, you know? Like, uh, you know, one of my heroes is Nelson Algren. He sentimentalized everything, right? Um, so I think there, but I think it's a fine line and I think we have to be careful of, of, of you know, over romanticizing memory. And I, I, I work very hard to, you know, I, I write a lot about my father. I hope I don't, um, I know I don't romanticize him, although I was once accused of it by my brother. Um, but, uh, and I actually, I think there's a line in the book about that, but, uh, you know, I think I try and be honest about, about who I'm remembering, you know, and not, not look at it as if, as everything was always so great. And I think nostalgia sometimes can maybe um, lean on in that way too much, you know, as if, as if things were always, always wonderful, you know, I, I try and honor the bad times as, as much, even more so. In fact, you know, maybe that's, you know, important to do, like to memorialize the bad times because they were part of the deal too. You have an essay in here and you separate the book actually, um, cause your essays are not titled, um, you separate the book, the book into morning, mid-morning, noon, 3 p.m., dusk, and night. So I wanted to ask you about that organizing principle, both the concept behind those titles and then how you, if you wrote any of these to meet the time of day or if 
you wrote them all first. I'll say this, that I, I've been resentful of titles for a long time. <laughs> and I, I, you know, when you're in the museum, I may have said this before on your show, because <laughs> it's often something I say, but when you're in the museum and you see the painting that says untitled, and then you just look at the painting to figure out what it is, I've always loved that idea. And I've tried it in stories, not titling them um, in other in other books. Um, and I just, I feel like the title is this kind of sometimes annoying guide to what the writer's thinking about. And I feel like, you know, I'd like to get rid of that sometimes. And so I really didn't want to have titles on each of these essays. Um, I felt it would be too guiding and too, it would get in the way. I just wanted them to be how they came to me, which was they kind of started as disembodied thoughts and then they sort of developed, you know, and I, I didn't have a title on them then. And, and so I didn't want to do that, but I thought I would number them. The other reason I did that is because I thought maybe, we, you know, I don't read books in order, but I know I should. And so I was trying to get people to read in order by having them, having them numbered because they are, I spend a great deal of time uh, putting stuff in order. I mean, it takes me, you know, months and I lay it out on the floor and it's physical, like, you know, and I, I kind of crawl around and I'll read something and then I'll think, all right, what, what can go, what can go next, you know? And so, um, that's how, that's how that, and I thought like the day it comes from, um, a Bernadette Mayer book that I talk about late in the, in the book where she, um, took one single day out of her life and wrote an entire book about it, of it recording her thoughts and actions from morning to night. And it's a truly ex extraordinary book called Midwinter Day. And it just, you know, it shows you like no other book I know of, including Ulysses, frankly, which is, which has the same structure, but also, you know, it's kind of like impossible. Like Midwinter Day actually literally is it. It's her thoughts and actions from start to finish and its entire universe and it's incredible and it reminds me how much can happen in a day, like an entire world in a day. And so that's what I was trying to think about. Yeah, it's kind of a microcosm for your entire life. Totally, right? If you were to sort of map out the things you remember during the day, one day, the things you, the things you do, the things you say, you know, imagine, imagine the text. And then you have winter, midwinter day. Imagine if you're kind of this fascinating, uh, kind of crazy poet, you know, and married to a poet and you got two young kids. That's that book. I think I might be living my life out of order. Well, don't get me started because I think like, you know, a lot of books act like life is in order. These novels I read, they're like, Life is all in order, right? It's, it's not haphazard. Last I checked, it was pretty haphazard. This is with me. And I know it is with you too, right? I mean, so the idea that, and you know, you write novels, I write novels, I love them. I love to read them. But we are trying to sort of rein in something that is haphazard. And I think some books, you know, kind of just own it. And that's what I think I was trying to do. 
Well, that's something that you actually talk about in that essay about Midwinter Day. You say, Mayer knows what we all know, which is that often as not, there isn't any rhyme or reason why one of our thoughts follow another. And that is my experience of life. And I felt that in your stories. Not not that this was like a, a book of chaos. I'm not saying that. But it's just very indicative or or mirroring how our brain works totally totally right you're driving along what are you thinking about where does your brain go how many places how many time zones how many how many years back you know it's just it's just totally crazy it's crazy that we can sort of get up in the morning when all of that is burdening us and so you know i, I i'm all kudos for those people who can kind of and kind of like blow right past that and be focused, you know, and, 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 and I, God knows I try, but, but I think what, what I loved about that book and what it showed me is that a, I wasn't crazy and B that that in itself can be just incredibly, uh, artful, you know, um, midwinter day is not messing around. It's not, it's, it's, it's a, you know, it's a, it's a book that, that does honor to our, you know, our scattered lives, you know, and, and, and makes them the thing, which they are the thing. They are the thing. So what about 3 PM? Why did you choose three? Because when, isn't the day sort of coming long at that point, 3 PM, you know, it, it, there's something about as the afternoon starts to wear on into evening that I thought was, um, a key place to sort of pause. You know, I needed to divide the book up in the day, so I had to pick these things. But but 3 p.m. seemed to me to be that moment where you're starting to take stock of what you didn't do, you know, what you have to do tomorrow. You know what I mean? Like there's you're running out of time on the on the kind of the, the work clock, right? And you know, which we are all on even if we don't, you know, have work like that. But I'm somebody who, like, in terms of this job, the writing job, if I don't do it in the morning, it's over. And so by three, I'm already kind of full of certain regrets. And so I think I, you know, things are just, things are starting to get darker at three, I would say. Yeah, I talked to someone recently. That's why I can't remember who it was who really, like, loathed three o'clock in the afternoon. They couldn't stand it. I, I can I can understand that. I mean, there's something about it just, like, is it, you know, I mean, my kids come home at three, which is great. But but aside from that, it, 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 it and that's part of the clock. The clock has ended. Like I did no longer can work, you know. So there is that also. But yeah, there's something about it, and I don't need to be too dark about it. But you know, it, it, like and the metaphor obviously is you know our life in a day, right? And we hit the we hit a you know when we hit the three p.m. mark, which maybe I'm at or past that. Uh, you know, it starts to feel like, okay, I've only got so much daylight left. I mean, not to take that metaphor farther than it needs to go. So in one of the early essays, you're writing about um, Mr. Sandy, who's your um, piano teacher. (laughs) And he comes over and I don't think you were like the best piano player in the world. Um, (laughs) I don't think you practice very much. And you, you say, this is where you first bring up this idea and you just say in a single sentence towards the end, I'm hoarding scraps. And it seems to me that so much of your nonfiction 
is that's what you're doing. And it reminds me a little bit, I talked to Jenny O'Phil about this because she that's what she did um, for the Department of Speculation. It was scraps, but in a really different manifestation. And I do, I also want to talk about the last lines because it's one of the first ones that made me cry. But I'm just curious about this concept of hoarding scraps, of hoarding maybe sentences, ideas, physical objects, and how that works both in fiction and nonfiction. It's such a great um, place to go, <laughs> uh, you know, for me. Um, like uh, somebody like Mr. Sandy, who was a guy I, who taught me piano or didn't teach me piano for a year or two when I was a kid. He's not a major player in my life, right? And yet I think about him. And, and I wasn't going to write a novel about him. I wasn't even going to write a story about him, you know. Yeah, but but I, wanted to, I wanted to honor him. I wanted to remember him. I wanted to say he was a part of the deal um, because he kept bubbling up. You know, every time I look at a piano, I think of Mr. Sandy. You know, my own kid's taking piano lessons. She's about as interested as I was. Um, she's more interested. But I wanted to just tip my hat to Mr. Sandy, you know, a guy who I know is probably, I'm sure, is dead, right? Um, and I don't know how many, he wasn't the best piano teacher. He worked pretty hard. He drove all around given home lessons, must have not been an easy life. You know, I don't know how many people remember Mr. Sandy. I hope there's some good pianists out there who really do him honor because I was not a good one. So I'm not the person to tip my hat to Mr. Sandy, but it's part of my life. Yeah, I think too that in some ways, like scraps are more honest when you're writing about your life because and it might depend what kind of person you are. Maybe if you're a person that mows your lawn and rows, you have a really organized memory, but you read so many memoirs and I'm like, how do they know that that's exactly what everyone said? Like if I had to write about my life, I could probably give you a paragraph about something that lasted a month. And so in a way, there's something more honest, maybe. I, absolutely. And, and maybe not completely honest either. You know what I mean? But it's a, I think it gets a little closer as opposed to the sort of manufactured versions of life. I only read a memoir unless if it's weird, you know what I mean? Like, I, I, yeah, I don't want to read like a trajectory, like where the subtitle tells you the person's the hero of their own story and they overcame X, you know, I'm not dissing that idea. People do, but it seems to me that a lot of memoirs are manufactured towards that subtitle. Um, and, you know, more power to him. It's just not, it's just not for me. I, I don't, it seems that my life has not worked out that way. And I, most people I know's lives are not on some kind of trajectory that lends itself to a seamless narrative. So your mom comes up in, in a lot of these and, you know, she worked really hard. She was brave and left your father and, you know, raised you and your brother and, you know, met another man and got married. But you, especially when it was just the three of you, I think you were her world. And you write about um, that she was a substitute teacher and that when you were with Mr. Sandy um, and not playing very well and not playing very many things, um, you write um, when she comes home from work, My mother in the kitchen, heartened by a few notes out of the piano in the living room. It didn't matter to her that it was only the beginning of the same song. 
over and over. Oh my God, it makes you cry. Like it, you just capture like that moment of, again, like in a separate room, sort of looking through the door, listening through the door of this, like both this longing and this fulfillment at once. Just wanted to ask you about that because so many of your endings are like that. Yeah, thanks for mentioning my mom. I mean, my mom, you know, is sort of the hero of this book for sure, you know, and and again, not a perfect hero, but but somebody who who's always sort of had this kind of optimistic way of seeing, even in pretty dark times for her, um, has always sort of had this, still does. And and I I think I was thinking about what it was what it would be like to be in the kitchen after a long day of work, making dinner while your kid is not learning piano in the other room. And, uh, and I just think of what that meant in life for him. And she didn't, you know, like something I might do is like, ask me, you know, I, I, as I see myself being a bad dad, a lot of times, you know, I'm asking my kid, like, how come you're not practicing and stuff? And then I realized like my mother never did that. Like she never did. She just, took it in and I just can imagine her listening or, or, you know, kind of looking on the bright side that at least I was, had someone to talk to, you know, a little bit and, uh, and just kind of like, let that be. Cause I know she heard me not really having a lesson, you know, every Wednesday night or whatever it was a couple Wednesdays a month or whatever, how often I had lessons. I just feel like I was trying to change the angle. And, and that, I mean, not to be all crafty, but I'm often trying to change the angle on, on stuff. And, and so if I'm writing from my own perspective, I, I, I always want to get out, get out of there and, and, and give, um, another character or another real person, the angle of the, of the piece. Is that instinctive or did you learn that? I mean, I'm uncomfortable writing. I mean, I couldn't be that uncomfortable because it's the second time I've done it, right? But I'm, I'm uncomfortable writing too much about myself. So I, I, I shift, I, I kind of deflect and I want to, to go to another perspective. That's why I write about other people's writing all the time. I'd rather, you know, not talk about my own. You know what I mean? I'd much rather talk about somebody else's work, frankly, because that excites me. My own work, you know, I try the best, I do the best I can, but... It's not what I go for, for excitement. I read somebody else. You have an essay in here and you're writing about Kafka who wrote a little paragraph. I think it was found after he died about Don Quixote. And he was writing in this paragraph that it was really Sancho who invented Don Quixote and that, um, this, he created the character for his own amusement as a, as well as a kind of self exorcism. And you're writing in there, um, you say something about like disembodied scraps because it was found later and then published. And um, you're also talking about readers and what kind of readers people are and that you can't really see that. And so the last paragraph there, you write, And I think of all dead readers, not exceptional ones, just ordinary dead readers of the sort that you and I will become, the kind of people who, after reading a certain sentence, might pause to think for a moment or two before moving on. What if these thoughts, these threats? your stray thoughts, my stray thoughts don't vanish. What if they remain in the atmosphere? When a thought comes to us out of nowhere, what if it's one of those disembodied scraps? So I wanted to ask you about 
this and also, but also that concept of like a really good reader and you, you can't see them. You're not going to see everyone who holds up your book who's a good reader or a bad reader. Right. I mean, Kafka in that, how many pages is Don Quixote, you know, 800 plus in one paragraph, he does something totally miraculous. He sees something that, that it would just take. So you'd have to be so invested in that story to see that, to say that maybe other people have said it, maybe he ripped it off. I doubt it though. I think he's the one who recognized that maybe Sancho was the writer, right? I've just, I've never heard anyone else say it. You know, I've read Nambalkov's beautiful book about Don Quixote. I don't think he says it. It's just this thing that kind of, I think it was like a one-on-one connection between Kafka and Cervantes. And then that came out. And I feel like um, that, that, you know, that's like a, a superhero kind of reader for me. It's like, now there's the guy. You know, and Kafka had pretty good chops as a writer, as you know, you know, but, but what about Kafka as a reader? You know, what, what kind of um, independence, I think, did he display? You know, no one was telling Kafka how to read anything, right? And I, I feel like, as I, I, I tell my students, as I tell myself, don't let other people have your, their analysis. Read it, you know, take it for what it is, for what you see. But I also think he read slowly and closely and embodying it like he was there. And I feel like when we don't read that way, we're not in, we're not inside the text. And therefore, it's kind of an exercise that ends up being shallow. I think that we don't talk about that enough, I think, in school. You know, we I mean, I think back to seventh grade, Mrs. Smith, uh, to build a fire, man versus nature. I mean, it blew my mind open to learn that that (laughs) even happened in books. But then it feels like there's a right or wrong answer. And as soon as you tell kids that there's a right or wrong answer, you're afraid to start mowing the lawn out of order. Yeah. And then, you know, this carries over, right? This carries into college and grad school and and life itself. And the paper talking about the book, you know, and and I just I, I do. I think it's a heartbreaking thing. When, when you have people, um, you know, uh, uh, suggesting meaning or even worse on stuff that really should be an emotional thing. It's sad. But and I think it makes for, you know, how many people do you hear who are like, oh, I don't read fiction. I, re- I, I and this is a, a lot of men say this, right? Not to be stereotyping. But like, how many guys have you met and be like, no, I, no, I don't I read nonfiction because I want to learn, you know, I want to. I, I've got to get, there has to be a net gain, right? What's the net gain with, a, with, with you know, reading about Sancho and, and, and Don Quixote running around doing crazy things? No net gain, right? And, and I just, you know. Well, you sorry. actually have an essay about that in here uh, <laughs> to your English teacher. Yes. Um, <laughs> to Mrs. Angerman. Angerman, kind of about like what you saw in the Scarlet Letter that, what you weren't really allowed to say. Yeah, I mean, it was sort of a mock letter to a dead English teacher who I, who I dearly loved, um, Mrs. Engerman, um, where I was kind of, you know, she was a good one, though. She was actually, the, she was the kind of teacher who, who, who taught me what I believe in, which is take this for yourself. Engage with these people. Engage with Hester and Dimsdale and, 
and Killingsworth or whatever his name was um, on your own terms, you know, see them and, and, and judge them, whatever you want to do, just act like they're real. I think that that's kind of how Angerman approached it. This is real stuff. And when a story is good, it's real. And so that's why come somebody coming from on high and analyzing it for you is like, you don't need that. These people are real. Be with them. Yeah, you write in the end, you're writing about a poem uh, called Blackbirding on the Hudson by Yusuf Komenyaka. Yeah. And he has a line in there that says, I have also gone where love has taken me. And when I read that, I just, it slayed me because you can think about it in all the good ways, but it also takes you down bad roads. You know, love can also take you into pain. And I think in a way that sort of encapsulates this book that you're talking about these scraps of your life. You're talking about your family, the housekeeper, at your grandparents' house, your uncles, the family that's mad at you. And then how it's reflected in pick fiction and poetry. Yeah. I mean, I, uh, that line slayed me too. Um, and when I read it, it, it sort of brought me to a place that I talk about in that Pete, that, that essay, which is that my, my mother had, just experienced the loss of her husband of 40 years. They had this very unique relationship where they would, they would have a few drinks, maybe more than a few, and they would talk all night, <laughs> talk all night long, right? I mean, you know, these people, they have work in the morning, they'd be talking. Three, I'd, be, I'd be staying over at 3.30 in the morning, they'd be just chatting. Like, who does that? <laughs> you know, and so, so when my stepdad died, it was obviously incredibly devastating. And... You know, my mother was shaken, you know, like everybody experiences all, you know, every minute of every day. And, and you know, there wasn't anything unique about it, but it was incredibly um, painful. And uh, I just I came across that line of, of Komenyakas, you know, where, you know, where we had you have to go there like you had she had to go there. Right. And we were walking along the beach and it just it just struck me um, that. And again, somebody else gave me that, you know what I mean? Like this great gift of that particular phrase, you know, allowed me to sort of sit, you know, to, to relate it back to her. Komenyaka wasn't writing about my mom, you know, it's actually writing about, um, you know, about the middle, uh, middle passage in some ways in that, in that poem. Like there's a lot of things going on in, in Blackbirding on the Hudson. Um, but the, the kind of pain that it was uh, talking about, especially that, that one line, it resonated so much that I kind of, I worked off of it to try and to try and talk about my mom and her grief. So I'm wondering, since so many of these pieces from your life in Highland Park in the 70s and 80s are, they're just so 70s and 80s, you know, they have like the questioning of the key sort of parties. And, I'm sort of trapped in the 80s. <laughs> yeah, and they, um, but they're very just innocent and beautiful from childhood. And I'm wondering about the shooting and how that, how that squares with your memory or how you're sort of dealing with the chaos of that. Um, first of all, my mother is a, uh, a politician. She's um, running for reelection of the water reclamation district, North Shore water reclamation district, which deals with sewage for like, million people um my mother was in the parade she was in an open car 
Um, my stepbrother was driving. She was maybe, I don't know, less than a tenth of a mile from the from the shooting. Um, and, you know, so obviously it hit home pretty hard. I was in the 4th of July parade. Um, but one thing, I, I got in a little trouble with my friends back home. I, I, a reporter from the Chicago Tribune wrote like a week after, not in the immediate aftermath. I was curious about, you know, perspective, my perspective, you know, I'm flattered to be asked and it is my hometown and, you know, I, I love it and I write a lot about it. So he asked me and, and I got in kind of trouble because I was like, well, you know, Island Park's kind of fairly ordinary, you know, it's affluent. Yes. But it's also a, um, the characterization of it being a sort of affluent enclave. I mean, it's a city of 35,000 people. It's a big, you know, it's a, it's a small city and, uh, it's got all kinds of stuff going on and it always has. And, and I, I wasn't surprised by what happened. How could anyone be surprised that, that somebody would open fire on your, on your local parade, you know, and, and the, the, the uh, shock expressed by people I love, um, friends, my mother, I don't think was that surprised. Actually, she, she, she knows she reads the paper, you know, but like people are like, how could it happen here? Like, really? You're asking that question in 2022, right? 2021. So devastating, but not surprised. And, you know, um, unless we do something, you know, I don't want to get on my political high horse, but um, it wasn't surprising. It was devastating, but it was not surprising. My um, uh, step niece who just got married, was sitting on the sidewalk right in front of Ross's discount where the shooter was on top of the roof. I mean, it's also personal because I know the place so intimately, you know, and so that part of it also is really like weird to be um, reading that, but again, not, not surprising. Is there anything else about your book that you want to talk about that we didn't, I have pages of notes, but you know, <laughs> uh, you know, no, you, I mean, you're such a, uh, such a generous reader. I mean, so you always have been. So, you know, it's so great to talk to you about this and it, it just kind of makes me out of work actually, you know what I mean? Like to go back to work, you know, um, where I was upstairs working before I talked to you. So, you know, I think that's, that's what I, I if I would say anything about this book is maybe it's in, a thing in motion, right? It's, it's really, um, it's just about sort of the daily existence of reading and remembering and, and trying to put together some of the, the big things that happen in your life to, to yourself and the people you love and some kind of, um, you know, to kind of talk about them in a way that isn't, um, to talk about them in a way that it relates to the lives of other people. In, in my case, usually fictional characters. I think too, that there's something about it that's, and I don't mean this in a derogatory way. I mean it in a good way, like that's precious and not precious that, yeah that you don't have to, like, you can go to a thrift store and pick any book and get something out of it. That like you were writing about a book by Ellen Wilbur called wind and birds and human voices that you just found in a thrift store. Like you don't have to go and only buy Ulysses and you don't have to remember everything from your life. You can remember one small piece of your piano lesson and that there is so much value in the ordinary and you know and and we can say that and but i think like literally it's like so it it it, because it's not ordinary you know what i mean there's nothing ordinary about it it it, like that book i found uh wind birds and human voices it was like extraordinary fine and it was like in a completely 
you know, not, you know, it was in this incredible bookshop in New Bedford, which I hope is still there. But I feel like the ordinary, extraordinary thing is like really true if we really honor it, you know, and, and, and I think that's what I'm really trying to do is that there's really nothing ordinary. There just isn't. Yeah. I think that's the thing about life is that it's so precious, like in such a good way. It's just, everything is elevated. It's so weird, right? It's so weird. And I think that's what reading does. It, it heightens it, heightens our senses so that we notice shit more, you know, and that, and, and that is essential, you know, like, I, yeah, now it sounds like we're preaching, but it's true. It's like, you know, it, it, there's just so much to, you know, and even if your days are the same or you think they're the same, it, which I often do, they're not, <laughs> you know, they're not. Today has already been different. It's holy. Like life is holy. Yeah. And, but it's so hard for a lot of people, especially if you're depressed and especially if you, you're dealing with losses to, you know, to hold on to that. And so I do think if there's one thing about certain books is they can just remind you of that. Can you read uh, a passage from an author that speaks to you or influences you as a writer? Sure. I have um, a book read. Uh, this is such a fun question and it always is um, uh, to, to do this. And I, I'm, I'm going to read the first paragraph of a story called Murderers by um, the great Leonard Michaels story writer from originally from New York, lived in Michigan for a long time, but, but wrote mostly from the Bay Area, from Berkeley. He was a professor at Berkeley for a lot of years. When my Uncle Mo dropped dead of a heart attack, I became an expert in the subway system. With a nickel, I'd get to Queens, twist and zoom to Coney Island, twist again towards the George Washington Bridge, beyond which was darkness. I wanted proximity to darkness, strangeness. Who doesn't? The poor in spirit, the ignorant and frightened. My family came from Poland, then never went any place until they had heart attacks. The consummation of years in one neighborhood, a black Cadillac, corpse inside. We should have buried Uncle Mo where he shuffled away his life in the kitchen or toilet under the linoleum <laughs> near the coffee pot. Anyhow, they were dropping on Henry Street and Cherry Street, blue lips. The previous winner was my cousin Charlie, 45 years old. Mo, Charlie, Sam, Adele. Family meant a punch in the chest, fire in the arm. I didn't want to wait for it. I went to Harlem, the polo grounds, far Rockaway, thousands of miles on nickels, mainly underground. Tenants watched me go day after day. I might read this whole book if you, um, but this is still the first paragraph. Tenements watched me go day after day, fingering nickels. One afternoon, I stopped to grind my heel against the curb. Melvin and Arnold Bloom appeared, then Harold Cohn. Melvin said, you step in dog shit? Grinding was my answer. Harold Cohn said, the rabbi's home. I saw him on Market Street. He was walking fast. Oily Arnold, 11 years old, began to urge, let's go up to our roof. The decision waited for me. I considered the view of, uh, the view of industrial Brooklyn, the battery, ships, in the river, bridges, towers, and the rabbi's apartment. All right, I said. We didn't giggle or look to each other for moral signs. We were running. So the rabbi is going home to have sex with his wife, and the kids are going to watch. And that's the. It's about a three-page story that is breathless for me, and and definitely was a big influence. I it, it, the natural the 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 rhythms that Michael's writes in are um, 
Yeah, and maybe never more as well captured as they are in that particular story, but all his work is important to me, except for the novel, which I didn't like. Nobody liked it. Nobody liked that book. <laughs> sorry, sorry, Lenny. That's fair. Um, can you read something you wrote? Maybe it was tricky or hard or changed a lot from the first draft. This is uh, uh, section 50. Florida, Sanibel Island. We were in the kitchen of some condo. I was a senior in college and down there on vacation to see my father and his girlfriend. And my father started in again about what a cunt my mother was. And I went after him with a kitchen knife. My father had been slicing cantaloupe and the knife was lying there on the counter, a little wet from the cantaloupe juice. And so help me God, I'm going to plunge it into my father's chest. And he, for his part, stands there and waits for me to do it. Proud that at last I'm demonstrating the possession of a few of the balls I must have inherited from him. And meanwhile, his girlfriend shrieks, police, somebody, anybody, neighbor. But my father holds up his hand. No, no, wait. Let's see how this scene plays out. Do you want to talk about why you chose that? <laughs> uh, you know, it's a buried moment in my life, you know, and one that, um, you know, we create certain mythologies about ourselves. Um, that scene is, you know, something I remember and don't remember and mythologize and, you know, and I'm pained by. And so I, it was something I was trying to explore without too much context, I think, the earlier versions of it, um, I hemmed and hawed about it, and I just thought, you know what, I'm gonna, I'm gonna go with the memory here, and um, everything else be damned. Where do you write? I write in a old uh, railroad hotel in, in White River Junction. I have a little studio in in the hotel, the office building of the hotel. It's next door. Um, it's a strange and wonderful place to work. Um, I'm lucky to have a little space there. Uh, I work across the street from a very nice masseuse and next to the Habitat for Humanity people, which are great, and uh, some lawyers, the DAs in there. <laughs> and it's, then I, I wander around and often listen to people's conversations because the walls are so thin and the doors are so porous that I can hear everything, especially everything the DA says. I'm not sure he'd want to hear me saying this publicly because a lot of things I'm saying I, I listen to are probably private, but um, it's a... I can't imagine a better place to work. I'm lucky. What do you do or where do you go to get away from writing? I always struggle with this one because I don't think I do. And I wish I, I so I'm still working on an answer to that. Um, because I guess swimming is the only time that I can really get away because I can't, I, I have yet to figure out a way to bring a, a waterproof notebook with me uh, when I'm swimming. So literally, I think that's one of the few places that I, that I'm not sort of ready for an idea to come to me. And even then I have a notebook on the side of the pool. <laughs> so, cause I actually do a lot of good thinking. So I guess that it's, that's not even, I'm not free from it there. I'm never free from it. drugs. When I, when I take, you know, a gummy, I'll, I'll be free. Who do you show your work to first to get feedback? You know, I'm, I'm not a feedback, um, person. Uh, I do have very close friends um, who, who often look at work um, and I appreciate just having those eyes on them, but I'm often not looking for feedback. Um, I think I don't even like the word. It just sounds like regurgitation. Like you put something in a, somebody's computer head and then they come out and say something. If, if I read something or if I show something to somebody, and they feel something, I'm like, okay, okay. 
this is, I'm onto something here. How have you dealt with rejection? As poorly as everybody else, you know, they, uh, it's part of the, it's part of the deal with this for sure. Um, happens every day and, uh, just part of the, you know, I don't have anything original to say on that, except that, that I've always been somebody who doesn't let it bother me that much. In fact, it usually sends me back to work, even though I'm sad. What is your favorite word? I'm ready for this one. My, my daughter and I have been having an ongoing conversation about the word subtle, which is just a beautiful word, isn't it? But she says it should be subtle, subtle. I'm like, no, the whole point of it is that B is subtle, right? Um, but she's like, it's subtle. So I, I uh, got a big kick out of thinking about that. And I meant to look up the etymology of subtle and I haven't. But um, I do think that it is an extraordinarily, I mean, what would we do without that word? I guess be really loud and obnoxious. Yeah, exactly. We'd have a lot of, you know, I just think it's an important value. Well, thank you so much for talking to me again. I really appreciate it. It's, it's the best, Mitzi. It's the best. I mean, there's nothing better than to, than to talk to you about this. And I can't, you know, uh, just to have you reading this is, makes me feel so great. So thank you. If you like today's show with Peter Orner, author of Still No Word From You, check out my three other interviews with him on his fiction and nonfiction works. You can find the entire First Draft archive of more than 385 interviews at firstdraftwriters.com. You can stay tuned to First Draft on social media, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just look for First Draft A-D-O-W. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com anytime. Remember, there are plenty of extras for becoming a member and donating to First Draft, including access to pitch-free, ad-free content, as well as cuts from the interviews that didn't make it into the final show, writing tips from my guests, books, and more. Join me as I reach for honesty, vulnerability, connection, curiosity, and insights on craft with each episode. I can't tell you enough how much each and every single dollar counts to keeping this show alive. The first tier of support is just $6 a month, so please go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. Coming up in the next few months on First Draft, interviews with Peter Turchi and Stephanie Feldman. I want to send out a huge thank you to my patrons for making this interview happen your support makes First Draft a dialogue on writing a reality every week. Please stay healthy and safe. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm your host and producer, Mitzi Rapkin. Thank you for listening.